So there is in this movie about Steve Jobs, this scene, and there are actually two movies about Steve Jobs. Um, I realized that this weekend as I went looking for the scene, like one in 2011 and one in 2015. And it turns out both movies have a similar scene where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniacki, the founders of the Apple company, get into a very heated dispute. And it's personal and it's vindictive and it's mean and it is hurtful. And everybody in the room is simply paralyzed watching this scene. And there's that kind of cinematic genius that we on television all get to watch it as if we're these kind of uninvited um, bystanders who get to look at a very uncomfortable conversation. And you can't look away. I mean, that's the power of the scene. I shouldn't be watching this, but somehow I have to. It's a kind of, for me, maybe a great analogy for the book of Job that we read today. Job, if we um, play it out, it's a long book, and there's no way we can cover very much here. It's a book you simply have to sit and read. It may take you 45 minutes or so to read through all 42 chapters. But it's a story you have to take in from its beginning to its end. And in its structure, it's really three of these kinds of um, very scandalous, uh, powerful conversations. In the first conversation is God and the accuser, or the Satan as we call him, um, who's in the divine courts. And he has this conversation with God, wagering with him that if he strikes Job's life, his righteous man, that Job will deny him. And God takes the wager, and the story is set on its, on its way. The righteous man who fears God and turns away from evil and does good is allowed to be plagued with suffering, to lose his family and his house. His ten children are killed. So the second set of dialogues in the book run from chapter 3 through chapter 38, where we are today, and they are dialogues of Job with his three friends. And they go back and forth. The three friends speak and Job answers, and the three friends speak and Job answers in these lengthy dialogues. And if you listen to them and you attend and use your afternoon to read the book, you'll find that the conversations actually do have a sense of progress. The friends come in chapter 3 and 4 to lament with Job this seven-day ritual to cover themselves with ashes, to fast. There's sympathy, there is um, a sense of, of love and empathy for Job in this moment of his great suffering. And then Job calls out in his first speech and says, may the day I was born be darkness. Essentially, he wishes that he was not alive. And this will set the friends into questioning with Job. And the further the friends get along, the more accusing they get. And when God, when Job, excuse me, when Job demands a hearing from the Almighty, the friends say he will not get it. That his only solution to his plight is to confess his sin. And Job holds fast to his innocence for 35 chapters. And here, finally, in the last set of conversations that we begin in the reading today, is the divine answer. God has not spoken since chapter 1 when he spoke, or chapter 2 with the accuser when the wager was set out. And now we get God's response. And so for us today, it is that moment, one of very few in Scripture, where the Bible enters in or opens up this problem of suffering and of evil. Of the fact that there are people born innocent into this world who suffer greatly, who are born into poverty, 
who are born into disease and atrocity, who are born into unrighteous oppression. How could God, this is where the real burden of the test stands for Christians, how could God be good and loving and all-powerful and allow that? So many of us born into extraordinary freedom and safety and privilege. And we look out on this world and say, how can God allow that for the majority of people who walk this planet? And it is a question we should sit with. It is a question we should not look around and pretend it's all okay. Because if God is good and God is powerful, there is a problem here that has to be reckoned with. And that's where we meet God in Job today. And Job's, uh, God's answer, I should say, God's answer has two parts to it. One is more familiar and a more popular, and one is often overlooked. And the first answer that he has is rebuke. Maybe that's the obvious one. That God, when he comes to this question, will simply look back at his creature and say, you do not know what you are talking about. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? That's the poet's way of saying, careful, you're way out of your lane. You dress for action like a man, like a warrior. Put on your gear, because I'm coming at you. And God comes at him with 84 questions. And the questions, in fact, are of four kinds. We get a bit of an insight into God's revelation at this point. There are four kinds of questions that God asks him. There are the, where were you questions. I made the world before you were even a thought. Right? So this, this thing has a history that goes long before you. You weren't there when I put this thing into play. Can you? Can you draw up Leviathan with a hook, this great creature of the sea? Or have you ever, have you ever questions? Have you made it snow? And do you know? And the questions serve an obvious purpose. Job has to say in every case, no. And it's this long sort of display of the limits of our human knowledge. You may know that famous passage from Isaiah 55. For his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts, as high as the heaven is above the earth. And Job is reminded of human frailty and finiteness. We're going to enter into the problem of evil. God's initial answer is simply the fact, I can't tell you because you cannot understand. It's a cheap answer. It feels like that. It does, I know. But there is something paternal and maternal to it. Any of you have been around children, you don't even have to have parented to realize that until they get to a certain age, they ask a ton of questions that they cannot receive an answer to. They're abstractions, it's too difficult, it's socially complex. And you have to look at your dear children and say, because I said so. Or it's too hard to answer. And there is that sense that you can't give what they most want. And I think we ought to not think this is simply God dismissing Job. He spends four chapters on it. To lay out these beasts of the field and the skies and the cosmos. To say, Job, you simply haven't been created with the capacity to grasp this. But the second set inside of this answer is the one less recognized or acknowledged, though scholars do see it, 
It's the actual character of God's answers and his questions. The way he lays out his testimony back to Job. The first, I'll just give you three examples of the nature of these answers. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I sunk its bases? When I strung a line upon it and laid its cornerstone? What does that make you imagine? It's a house. God's a builder. A hospitable one. He has places for things. When I said to the waters, thus far and no further. This is house building. Proverbs 3 has a very similar saying. By wisdom, God built the earth. By his understanding, he laid down its foundations. Job, this isn't random created world. You can't see it, but if you could see it through my eyes, it is a happy house. In the ancient world, in the stories of creation, you may know of Gilgamesh or of um, um, the Enuma Elish, these ancient stories of creation. When the waters and when evil and suffering came out, the gods had to go into hiding because chaos was on the loose. And you have to hear that answer here. Job, the waters have a place where I say stop. The most fearful and symbolic aspect of chaos and of suffering and of evil is the waters. And God says, I have a room for them. And I tell them where to go. In fact, I open up and burst forth the waters that it may water the earth. This housing metaphor, a place, I give a place to the morning sun. Psalm 19 has the same image. It's not simply that God has made the world, but he's housed it. He's created it in a way that it functions with order and goodness. Second, this creation that God leads us through is one where the creation has a childhood before God. When I made the morning sun and the sons of God sang for joy. God says at the end of the chapter that we read today, do you feed the lion and the young lion when they growl in their cage? All throughout these four chapters, he'll claim that he feeds the animals. He is a, a father and a mother to these children of his. The animals of the field, the most dangerous one, to God are children. He feeds them in their seasons. And so Job has to know as a human that he is, if the creatures of the world and the stars and the sun are his children, how much more is he? We belong not simply to a house builder, but to a parent. In fact, third, to a mother. When I made the womb burst forth the waters of the earth, when I put swaddling bands on the deep darkness, Right? We live in an illumined world. They lived in a world of utter darkness with occasional fires. That thing you're afraid of, I put swaddling bands on it and I made a manger for it. All this language of muttering, of muttering and swaddling clothes and garments. It is, I know, in a modern world today, what a shallow answer for the problem of evil. But don't miss the invitation that God gets, gives to us. 
One writer says, this can sound like a steady rebuke, and it's only partly so. It is a catechism for a seeking human being who wants to know his Lord. Rather than us hearing God say, don't say that, Job, it's much more like God says, yes, Job, come along. I'll show you how I tend to this world that you are so afraid of. I love it. But you can't understand how to resolve that. Job has to take both sides of this. And there is something in this that's not very satisfying to us. But it has been the Christian answer for many seasons. If you go to Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 and Psalm 49, all psalms that wrestle with the problem of evil, they do not give us the answer we seek. And if Christians tell you that it's there in Scripture, it's just not, I don't think. There's this grand assurance that God has wrapped it up in his love. But he does not slow down to explain to us how it all works in the end. And so Job has to simply live by faith. And that's something I want to set before us for a moment. If he explained it, what virtue would there be in us? See, that's the wager with the Satan, with the accuser in chapter 1. I'll do all this to him and not give him the explanation and we'll see what he does. Will Job have faith? And the book works as a mirror to us. Will you be like Job? Can you stare in the face of immeasurable evil that enters into your own life and maybe strikes your own children? And will you have faith without understanding? Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And Job is that hard lesson that we get that it requires a virtue of belief. There is something I think that's more of a resolution for us in the New Testament in these readings in Hebrews and in Mark. Jesus is the great high priest who did not stand above but came below and suffered in every way as we did and yet without sin. We should sit with that for a moment, that image. The book of Hebrews begins this way. God spoke in many times, in many places, and through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his Son, through whom he made the world. The one who was in that answer to Job, through whom all these stars and planets and animals came to being, took up flesh, Hebrews says. To do what? To suffer like Job. That is the light that Job shines forward. I think there is a darkness in Job that is darker than what we have because the Creator Himself has said, I'll go and be Job. And I'll stand and let the creation press down upon me until I die. And I'll sit under every bit of suffering and rejection that humans know and feel it and empathize with it. The image we should get, I think, from this passage in Hebrews is that if Job had to look up and say, God, where are you? I want a hearing for my injustice. The Christian can look down at the one beneath us who became our servant. It is not a rational answer for suffering. But if it doesn't break the thought of your mind that the creator of the world sits below you in suffering, in the muck and the death of the world, and says, look down, and I will build you up that image from Psalm 91, he will bear you up. 
Not pulling you up from above, but Christ who goes down from below under our feet. And says, I will take this evil and this suffering and absorb it and transform it into new life. There is an answer in this that I don't want to leave aside. The church is often given. The fact that when we enter into suffering, it is a moment where we may know the Lord and the divine in his Christ in a way that if we did not suffer. It is not a welcome answer. It's not one I like to hear. It's not one I like to say. God comes to know Job in a way his friends never, ever could. Job is transformed radically by his suffering. He becomes a deeper, fuller human being. And this seems to be what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. Those who want to be at the top lord it over them among the Gentiles, but not so among you. Do you want to know me? Do you want to be like me? Do you want to share union with me? Do you want me to reveal myself to you? Then you must become the least. David preached last week, if you want to follow the Lord, then you must sell your possessions and give. And now Jesus says, if you want to know the Lord, you must serve. It is a world upside down. But it is a world that holds out hope and glory that Jesus who transformed death into everlasting life offers it for those of us who will follow him through his suffering and service and death into life. May he make us strong in faith to receive this. Amen.